This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton Section 3 Introduction Part 4 Subhead Tale of Two Cities It was well for him, at any rate, that the people rose in France. It was well for him, at any rate, that the guillotine was set up in the Place de la Concorde. Unconsciously, but not accidentally, Dickens was here working out the whole true comparison between swift revolutionism in Paris and slow evolutionism in London. Sidney Carton is one of those sublime ascetics whose head offends them, and who cuts it off. For him, at least, it was better that the blood should flow in Paris than the wine should flow any longer in London. And if I say that even now the guillotine might be the best cure for many a London lawyer, I ask you to believe that I am not merely flippant, but you will not believe it. Barnaby Rudge it may be said that there is no comparison between that explosive opening of the intellect in Paris and an antiquated madman leading a knot of provincial Protestants. The man of the hill, says Victor Hugo somewhere, fights for an idea. The man of the forest for a prejudice. Nevertheless, it remains true that the enemies of the red cap long attempted to represent it as a sham decoration in the style of Sim Tappertite long after the revolutionists had shown more than the qualities of men it was common among lords and lackeys to attribute to them the stagy and piratical pretentiousness of urchins the kings called napoleon's pistol a toy pistol even while it was holding up their coach and mastering their money or their lives they called his sword a stage sword even while they ran away from it Something of the same senile inconsistency can be found in an English and an American habit common until recently, that of painting the South Americans at once as ruffians waiting in carnage and also as poltroons playing at war. They blame them first for the cruelty of having a fight and then for the weakness of having a sham fight. Such, however, since the French Revolution and before it, has been the fatuous attitude of certain Anglo-Saxons toward the whole revolutionary tradition. Sim Tappertite was a sort of answer to everything, and the young men were mocked as prentices long after they were masters. The rising fortune of the South American republics today is symbolical and even menacing of many things, and it may be that the romance of riot will not be so much extinguished as extended and nearer home we may have boys being boys again, and in London the cry of clubs. The Uncommercial Traveller The Uncommercial Traveller is a collection of Dickens' memories rather than of his literary purposes, but it is due to him to say that memory is often more startling in him than prophecy in anybody else. They have the character which belongs to all his vivid incidental writing, that they attach themselves always to some text which is a fact rather than an idea. He was one of those sons of Eve who are fonder of the tree of life than the tree of knowledge, even of the knowledge of good 
and evil. He was, in this profoundest sense, a realist. Critics have talked of an artist with his eye on the object. Dickens, as an essayist, always had his eye on the object before he had the faintest notion of the subject. All these works of his can best be considered as letters. They are notes of personal travel, scribbles in a diary about this or that, that really happened. But Dickens was one of the few men who have the two talents that are the whole of literature, and have them both together. First, he could make a thing happen over again, and second, he could make it happen better. He can be called exaggerative, but mere exaggeration conveys nothing of his typical talent. Mere whirlwinds of words, mere melodramas of earth and heaven, do not affect us as Dickens affects us, because they are exaggerations of nothing. If asked for an exaggeration of something, their inventors would be entirely dumb. They would not know how to exaggerate a broomstick. For the life of them they could not exaggerate a tenpenny nail. Dickens always began with the nail or the broomstick. He always began with a fact, and even when he was most fanciful, and even when he drew the long bow, he was careful to hit the white. This riotous realism of Dickens has its disadvantages, a disadvantage that comes out more clearly in these casual sketches than in his constructed romances. One grave defect in his greatness is that he was altogether too indifferent to theories. On large matters he went right by the very largeness of his mind, but in small matters he suffered from the lack of any logical test and ready reckoner. Hence his comment upon the details of civilization or reform are sometimes apt to be jerky and jarring, and even grossly inconsistent. So long as a thing was heroic enough to admire, Dickens admired it. Whenever it was absurd enough to laugh at, he laughed at it. So far he was on sure ground. But about all the small human projects that lie between the extremes of the sublime and the ridiculous, his criticism was apt to have an accidental quality. As Matthew Arnold said of the remarks of the young man from the country about the perambulator, they are felt not to be at the heart of the situation. On a great many occasions the uncommercial traveller seems, like other hasty travellers, to be criticising elements and institutions which he has quite inadequately understood. And once or twice the uncommercial traveller might almost as well be a commercial traveller for all he knows of the countryside. An instance of what I mean may be found in the amusing article about the nightmare of the nursery. Superficially read it might almost be taken to mean that Dickens disapproved of ghost stories, disapproved of that old and genial horror which nurses can hardly supply fast enough for the children who want it. Dickens, one would have thought, should have been the last man in the world to object to horrible stories, having himself written some of the most horrible that exist in the world. The author of The Madman's Manuscript, of The Disease of Monk and The Death of Crook, cannot be considered fastidious in the matter of revolting realism or of revolting mysticism. If artistic horror is to be kept from the young, it is at least as necessary to keep little boys from reading Pickwick or Bleak House as to refrain from telling them the story of Captain Murder or the terrible tale of Chips. If there was something appalling in the rhyme of Chips and Pips and Ships, 
it was nothing compared to that infernal refrain of mud-stains blood-stains which dickens himself in one of his highest moments of hellish art put into oliver twist i take this one instance of the excellent article called nurse's stories because it is quite typical of all the rest dickens accused of superficiality by those who cannot grasp that there is foam upon deep seas was really deep about human beings that is he was original and creative about them but about ideas he did tend to be a little superficial he judged them by whether they hit him and not by what they were trying to hit thus in this book the great wizard of the christmas ghost seems almost the enemy of ghost stories thus the almost melodramatic moralist who created ralph nickleby and jonas chuzzlewit cannot see the point in original sin thus the great denouncer of official oppression in england may be found far too indulgent to the basis aspects of the modern police his theories were less important than his creations because he was a man of genius but he himself thought his theories the more important because he was a man end of section three end of the introduction